thing that makes the average citizen puke and look at the system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? I don't know anything about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Come. Evil has gone. Hello, you're listening to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Steve Jeffers, Yogi Polywall. And so what we wanted to talk about today is, well, the too big to fail banks. Uh, we wanted to continue to talk about this topic in the uh, wake of the coronavirus bailouts, which we previously did an episode on. But what we specifically wanted to talk about with regards to the uh, too big to fail banks is... The fact that without anybody noticing and without really much public commentary, these private too-big-to-fail banks have all become primarily funded with public money. Sean, are you saying that somehow the banks have duped us into thinking that their private entities are somehow being funded by our public wealth? Well, it's like... It's so weird to me because, again, this has happened with very little public commentary, but we've essentially, in the U.S., we've set up the worst of the U.S. financial system with the worst of the Soviet Union. So, you know, these things are basically government-sponsored entities at this point. I think that's fair to say. And what I wanted to talk about with regards to the six largest banks in the U.S., because, you know, people hear this term, too big to fail. They don't always know what it means. We should just go through uh, as of 2012, in order, the six largest banks in the United States are J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. And, you know, these people uh, are run by supposedly swashbuckling capitalists, but but this is really a government project at this point. And, and I think that should, hopefully at least, it should spark outrage. But what I want it to do with this podcast is go through and talk about all six of them. And, you know, in addition, there's also banks like Deutsche Bank and uh, Barclays and such, which could also be considered too big to fail. But I think mm -hmm. primarily we're talking about the big six in the U.S. But what I wanted to do with this podcast is throughout the course of this year, kind of go through these six and just talk about what happened. Because these were public or these were private institutions at one point. They were, uh, you know, banks that would live or die on their own uh, wits and trades. But now they just can't <laughs> fail. They have a, a massive public backstop, and no matter what they do, they make money. the The role of the U.S. government is to support their asset prices. And today, I wanted to start with Citigroup, because Citigroup. Uh, you know, it's the third largest, but it was the first to set off this trend because Citigroup is the one that repealed the uh, Glass-Steagall law uh, back, uh, which was created uh, in 1933 during the New Deal to separate banking functions and prevent these giant conglomerates from existing. I don't know, Sean. Criticize Citigroup? I mean, my City Bike membership, I just put $1,000 on, <laughs> so I really don't want to jeopardize how I get around town. Look, do you know how many people they had to illegally foreclose on to give you those bikes? <laughs> do, do you know how much uh, uh, Sinaloa cartel uh, cocaine money they had to launder to get you one of those bikes? You should be grateful yeah. to Citigroup. <laughs> now, 
Now, in addition to having the moral hazard of a, important, a systemically important financial institution going down, we have to worry about Big Bike and their, <laughs> their control over the discourse surrounding Citigroup. Do you know how much cocaine they had to smuggle in those little red umbrellas to get you those bikes? <laughs> I just like how they spell the word city with a I instead of a Y. It lets me know that they're not focused on the sometimes Y. They're focused on the always I. Yeah. Right. And so what we're going to do with this episode is uh, this is going to be a multi-parter. Uh, part one is going to talk primarily about Sandy Weil and Citigroup. Uh, Sandy Weil is a billionaire. He's the former CEO of Citigroup. He was the CEO of Citigroup until 2003. He was the chairman until 2006. He kind of stepped down, then the whole thing blew apart in the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, but we're going to talk about his biography on this first part, and if necessary, we'll continue that biography on the second part and also talk a bit more about his family. Uh, and then on the final part, we'll talk about Citigroup, specifically the company, you know, uh, particularly with regards to what they did in the 2008 financial crisis and also what's happening with them with this current crisis. Uh, because, you know, uh, uh, WallStreetOnParade.com talks a lot about how uh, Citigroup, uh, just quoting from their website, Citigroup received uh, at least $2.5 trillion in secret cumulative revolving loans from the Federal Reserve in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, they say Citigroup received the largest bailout in global banking history. And wow. not only that, you're seeing that again now with this current coronavirus pandemic where Citigroup's uh, share price in February traded at a high of about $78. Uh, as of this recording, it's trading about $43. We'll see if it changes throughout the weeks, but this is an almost 50% decline in share price. And in the 2008 crisis, Citigroup's share price went as low as 99 cents. And rather than nationalize it, the government just bailed them out. So, you know, you're, you're just seeing this institution that, that was set up that cannot lose money. We, the, gov the U.S. government policy is to keep this thing afloat no matter what the cost. Yeah, in one of our earlier episodes where when, when this financial crisis was first starting to become an issue, like we went through, we went through what the Federal Reserve was doing. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a lot like, like we said then, uh, what's going on today is a lot like then in that um, they have these huge multi-trillion dollar just standing facilities to for banks to swap securities with the Fed at un, like theoretically unlimited amounts. And like some people will say, well, that was all fine because that's a loan and they paid it back, right? Well, maybe so, but Main Street doesn't get those types of discounts in the way that big big banks and Wall Street do. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter if it was a loan, it was all paid back. Like if you had all of the small businesses that are applying today to the paycheck protection program, like, I mean, that's just been proven to be like, like a massively corrupt system where only the bank's largest or best customers get first access to the credit facilities. Whereas the banks themselves have like unlimited access to these uh, federal reserve programs. Yeah, like everybody who kind of concern trolls about, oh, it's just a loan. Like, I would love to take a loan at a 0.25% interest. I will take as much <laughs> money as you will give me at 0.25% interest because I'll just stick that shit in the stock market and pay you back at a profit. And then, you know, the other thing is uh, there's in economics, there's the concept of liquidity premium 
where, especially in a financial crisis, uh, there is a dollar amount to being able to access cash, and that goes mm-hmm. up during a financial crisis. So there is real value, even if these are, quote-unquote, just loan, but you know, in many cases, it's also asset purchases and, and all these other things. And I did just want to mention, uh, I'm quoting from CNBC, there was a, uh, a pair of PhD students at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. They tried to assess the total size of the Fed's the Federal Reserve's commitments in 2008, not just loans, but also asset purchases. They came up with the figure of $29 trillion. So that is wow. the total amount that the Federal Reserve dumped in in the 2008 financial crisis. So that... Yeah, I remember that report. It was everywhere for a while. And uh, a couple like of um, the modern monetary people were the ones who broke it. Like UMKC is like a hotbed for that um, hmm. uh, theoretical tradition in economics. And um, yeah, I mean, where did all the money come from? Well, they just they credited it onto computers of commercial banks. Hmm. How many trillions was it? 29? 29 trillion. Wow, that's fucking wild. That's like that's the that's only you know, what that is it's like total credit extended. Like That's only 14 trillion less than the British Empire stole from India according to articles. <laughs> Citigroup was like, look, put some bikes out there. We got to make it look like we're doing something with this money, okay? <laughs> Uh, but so again, this, the, the subject of today is Sandy Weil, uh, the first CEO of Citigroup because Citigroup was originally called Citibank and then it merged with uh, travelers insurance, uh, and mm-hmm. Sandy Weil was first the first co-CEO and then he pushed out the other guy. He became the first sole CEO of Citigroup. So he's really the guy who, who sets this off. And in fact, I wanted to talk uh, again briefly about Glass-Steagall. Uh, again, this is a 1933 law preventing banks from entering into the securities and insurance business. It was uh, right. passed uh, in response to the uh, uh, Great Depression stock market crash because this uh, all these things were going wrong, and it, it uh, kept financial crises mostly out of U.S. life for uh, 70 years and, or, you know, 60 years, and then they went back on it. But what I wanted to quote from in Sandy Wheel, there's a New York Times profile, uh, and they visit him in his office, and I'm just going to quote from it. On another wall hangs a hunk of wood at least four feet wide etched with his portrait and the words, quote, the shatterer of Glass-Steagall, unquote. Uh, so he actually has a framed picture in his office lauding him as the man who shattered Glass-Steagall. Wow. The man that broke the Glass-Steagall. Yeah. <laughs> and so, again, Glass-Steagall is this uh, New Deal-era legislation which separates uh, securities and insurance businesses from banks and also uh, deposit-taking banks from investment banks. And it's a very sensible piece of legislation, and it prevented concentrated risk from building up in the U.S. economy because the idea is that if one of these institutions fails, um, the taxpayer is not on the hook for bailing them out because they are small enough to fail. But also um, uh, banks that take deposits 
are not uh, engaging in risky investment banking and proprietary trading with uh, subsidized deposit money, because, of course, depositor money in banks is uh, insured and subsidized by the federal government. So it's a very sensible piece of legislation, and repealing it has been a disaster. And again, when we talk about the six too-big-to-fail banks, J.P. Morgan Chase, J.P. Morgan merged with Chase after this legislation was repealed. This could not exist uh, without this legislation being repealed. So Citigroup and Sandy Weil are really the people who set this chain of events in, in motion, and we're still facing and dealing with the consequences today. Yeah, so in... On November 12, 1999, that's when the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act was passed, which effectively uh, repealed the Glass-Steagall Act from the earlier Banking Act of 1933. And so by the time that was really finalized, um, the the effects were like almost immediately. So commercial banks between roughly 2002 to 2007 uh ended up taking a lot of proprietary bets with money that was supposed to be there to secure their retail and commercial banking side. And they got more and more risk and went into fancy products like uh, credit default swaps and all those things that we, uh, you might be familiar with from some of our other episodes. And uh, there's a lot of sort of systemic risk that people... Um, Looking back, they like to see, like, how could we have known? But there are other mm-hmm. economists like uh, Nassib uh, Taleb, uh, the author of the Black Swan book, um, where he's saying, like, uh, you always expect to see a white swan, mm. but uh, eventually you'll see a situation that's so unusual that, um, or, or it's usual, but we just choose to ignore it. And mm. this is basically he's, the latter case. He's also the author of many tweets with the word imbecile in it. <laughs> the last thing you see before you see that block screen. <laughs> but so I wanted to kind of tell the chronological story about Sandy Weil, and this will mostly bring us up to the repeal of Glass-Steagall. We'll talk a little bit about how this legislation actually got repealed, the, the lobbying that was done. Uh, by former President Gerald Ford and Jesse Jackson, interestingly enough, were two people who lobbied to to repeal this legislation. Jesse Jackson, eh? Yeah. What, yeah. What well, was his hand in this? Well, so Sandy Weil kind of used his fortune to fund a bunch of charities, and then Jesse Jackson became a friend of him through that, through his, like, uh, I believe, Harlem right. charity investments. And then uh, because a lot of community groups were understandably opposed to repealing Glass-Steagall, Jesse Jackson kind of leaned on them and uh, leaned on uh, members of Congress to support the repeal of of Glass-Steagall. It's an unfortunate mark on his legacy. You know, we certainly talk about philanthropy a lot on the show, but I don't think we ever really get into how much of a just straight ripoff the American taxpayer, and just wellness in general, f- general philanthropy is. Because it doesn't seem to me that any person we've covered that has several charitable organizations does more good with the wealth they have than evil. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like, it is really, philanthropy is such a good deal for these billionaires where not only do they uh, launder their reputations, but they clearly buy influence and power. Where, I mean, we've Mm -hmm. talked about it on the Bloomberg episode and some other episodes where uh, if you're donating to these groups, you can use them 
to to assert power. You can use them to lobby for your interests. They will be dependent on you because they need your money. So they'll basically do do what you ask them to do. And for many billionaires, their failed sons and failed daughters will end up being members on the boards of charitable organizations. And, you know, the cons- the notion that nepotism has ever ended <laughs> is very funny to me because I think as a child I did feel like, oh, you know, people don't usually get a job from who their parents are. And then now my eyes are so open to the fact that like, no, that, that is literally most of the reason some people get jobs. Yeah, certainly Sandy Wiles' kids uh, would both get multi-million dollar salaries at Citigroup. And that's kind of like the thing is, we'll go through, to kind of start the biography of Sandy Weil, I, I would say up top, his reputation is as a cost cutter. You know, he, he takes, he's taken over a bunch of different companies, he's come in there, he's slashed pay, he's slashed benefits, he's got all the expenses down. But it's like, oh yeah, you still managed to find, uh, <laughs> you still managed to find room in the budget to give your fucking fail kids multi-million dollar <laughs> salaries, huh? I guess that was a vital expense. Oh, you you managed to find room in the budget to have your Gulfstream jet and your uh, nightly steak dinners, and that's basically what it means to be a cost cutter. Is this guy, you know, eat, who for a while ate at the Four Seasons every day, you know, steak lunches, uh, steak dinners? Uh, this is a guy who's rich multi-millionaire later billionaire and he's the one who like slashes your 50k a year salary down 10 percent and throws you off of your uh, health insurance plan and that's how you get a good reputation on wall street that's how you get a good reputation as a cost cutter is uh, putting suffering onto other people so does he have corona we don't know if uh, sandy wheel has corona yet please please say yes He was like, he was a longtime cigar smoker. So uh, that study showing that uh, tobacco <laughs> prevents corona might actually be going in his favor. We'll find out. Here it is again. Big virus taking down big tobacco. Once again, we see how the pharmaceutical industry just wants to cut into that tobacco <laughs> dollar that they've been so envious of this whole time. That would be great, though, if, like, Big Tobacco just had a bunch of researchers on staff with nothing to do, and they're like, all right, let's get a fucking coronavirus study out there before anybody knows what's going on. Like, yeah, nicotine prevents coronavirus. Come on. This is what we pay you for. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the one other thing I wanted to say about Sandy Weil before we get into kind of his chronological biography is he does define he's representative of a change in American capitalism. Because there was a period in American capitalism where the CEO of a company didn't just feel obligated to shareholders and to juicing next quarter's returns. You know, they had uh, obligations to employees, they had obligations to stakeholders. You know, this was partly by legislation, partly by culture. But Sandy Weil is one of the first CEOs to really pioneer the model of, I have zero obligation to anybody except for the shareholders in this company. And in fact, when he takes over, um, when he creates Citigroup, and he's initially co-CEO with uh, the other CEO, John Reed, uh, they have a lot of battles because John Reed was kind of more of an old school CEO, and uh, he kind of was focused on keeping the company going five years from now as opposed to the next quarter. He focused on uh, having the employees have, you know, benefits and these sorts of things. And eventually, Sandy Weil pushes him out. And the focus on nothing but next quarter's returns dominates and eventually takes over the entire U.S. financial system. 
yeah, he is a trailblazer akin to Lewis and Clark into the new wave of a CEO that only cares about profits and not about the people that work for them. Yeah, and also he's like, <laughs> he's uh, pretty gin-soaked. Like I would say if I were to, t- to define his reputation in one sentence, it would be gin-soaked cost cutter. <laughs> like, so I read this book. Gin-soaked? Yeah, <laughs> I read this book, uh, Tearing Down the Walls, by Monica Langley. She's a Wall Street Journal reporter. She wrote a biography about Sandy Weil. I I read through it, and this will be the primary source for this episode. But uh, if you were to just control-F the word gin in that book, uh, you would have hundreds of results. Because this guy, like... Like, these people have such a great reputation as, like, such business geniuses, but his job seems to be to just go to lunch, and then uh, the waiters already know to give him a gin martini, and then to refill it as soon as it disappears. So, you know, I mean, he's just living madman life. Man, what a life. Just eat fancy lunches, and get to drink every day, and people treat you like you're a fucking king so he had a right. steak i mean like he had a steak and gin every day for like 30 years <laughs> yeah this guy like disproves every single medical treatment we've ever studied <laughs> he's like just giving himself coronavirus for longevity well the studies on how to live a healthy lifestyle are based off of his dietary habits hmm. they found out everything not to do by everything this guy has done um, but yeah, and, and so to kind of start the chronological biography of Sandy Weil, though, though one other thing I do want to mention is when we talk about him as cost cutting, another strategy he comes up with is to push stock options onto employees, which seems like, you know, um, seems like a generous thing to do. It's, it is something he talks up, but it's also another way of cost cutting where a lot of, of uh, we'll go through some representative examples, but basically every single company he's ever taken over, which were a lot of them, them throughout his career, he pushes all sorts of different cash benefits out the window. You know, he slashes your vacation days, he slashes your medical to shit, he uh, cuts your pay, he lays off people, but then he gives you stock options. And this is his way of saying, you know, hey, now you're invested in the company, but really it's taking a more expensive benefit and giving you a lesser benefit and saying, hey, I'm doing you a favor, you know? Right, right. The restaurant you work at no longer has bathrooms, but we're going to give you a water bottle to pee in every now and then. Mm -hmm. I'm taking away defined benefits and giving you defined contributions. (laughs) Basically, yes. But so... To start the uh, chronological biography, again, this is based on uh, the book Tearing Down the Walls by Monica Langley. Um, Sandy Weil is born in 1933. He grows up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Uh, Apparently, he was short and chubby. He was an easy target for bullies uh, who (laughs) apparently uh, sent him often scurrying to his mother's protective skirts. Uh, Shy and reclusive. He made no close friends at school, and uh, his only real friend growing up with was his little sister, Helen. Uh, you see, I think the bullies kind of overdid it there. <laughs> so they, you know, they need, they need to find a sweet spot. So, I mean, usually the billionaires we cover, I think they didn't go far enough, but I don't know. Reading through some of his bio stuff, it seems pretty harsh. From a few of the th- articles I read on him, his name is Sanford I. Weil. And the I initial, he says, was his mother gave him the initial 
and intended on giving him a middle name that started with the letter I, but never got around to it and told him to create one for himself after the age of 21. <laughs> and I think the I stands for indefensible. <laughs> they just they have a tradition where they let the child name themselves. I I don't know, but I I, I came across that because at first I thought it was like Sanford the first while. How do you say his last name, Sean? Uh, while. While. So I thought it was like Sanford the first or something. And then I was like, oh no, this is just the letter I. And the quote from is that his mom wanted to give him a name with, with letter I, but just never got around to it. And it's like, just don't have that be a part of your name then, you know? <laughs> yeah. Her, his mom was like, yeah, mommy will give you a middle name after she finishes her gin and tonic, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> Said that every day for 21 years. This initial is a promise to give you a name right. later. Yeah, we're switching your defined benefit middle name to a defined contribution middle name. <laughs> yeah, you provide it later. So, but yeah, so his dad, so he grows up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. His dad owns a steel importing business. It was the uh, Super Deluxe Steel Plating Co. Uh, it had five plants across the country. This is. Um, the uh, 1930s and 40s. So his family was, you know, even throughout the Depression, relatively prosperous. His dad had a business. And um, basically, the the long and short is that Sandy gets into Cornell. He, he originally uh, majors in uh, metallurgical engineering. Um, though even before that, he goes to military school. Then he goes to Cornell. Uh, he majors in metallurgical engineering with the hopes of joining his dad's company you know, go on that track route. <laughs> but uh, instead, he joins a, a Jewish fraternity, AEPI, and uh, he starts to get a heavy schedule of alcohol and parties at night, missed classes in the mornings, and weekends full of dates, according to the Monica Langley biography. So he starts to flunk all his engineering courses, and he switches over to liberal arts um, instead, which, you know, is easier than metallurgical engineering. I don't like that this guy was a frat guy because he's got a face like a loser, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and also it should just be noted that uh, while he was at Cornell, he had a, uh, a yellow Pontiac convertible and a credit card both supplied by his father. So he grows up a rich kid is what I'm saying. Yeah. Wait, what car did he have? A yellow Pontiac convertible. Oh, wow. It must. And this is like uh, mid-50s, mid-60s? Uh, yeah, this is uh, early early fifties. His, fam- wow. his family owned a steel company, so I mean, yeah, it's they, basically, they must it's basically just conditions. over. You're you're gonna be rich for the rest of your life, right? Dad, I need a newer model of convertible to offset my face. <laughs> but yeah, so he uh, graduates from Cornell, or actually, while he's still in Cornell, something rather interesting happens to him. Uh, Just quoting from the biography here, uh, his father sprang a stunning surprise, leaving the house on the pretext of going for a pack of cigarettes. uh, His father, Max, phoned his unsuspecting wife to tell her that he had long been having an affair with a younger woman, and now he intended to divorce Etta and marry his lover. Um, And then his mother calls Sandy and tells him about all this. Sandy and his sister drive out to confront their father, and then the father reveals to them that he also sold the steel company. So there's no job waiting for Sandy. 
And also his dad was having, you know, a long-term affair with a younger woman. Right. Yeah. So, you know, these are these kind of formative experiences that make you into a, a business asshole who seems to do nothing but think about his work and his job and care nothing for his family life and any other pursuits. I wonder what the number is on children of divorce versus children of parents with marriages still intact that become billionaires. Because it's not necessarily an even split by any regards, but I I feel like we don't run into that many divorced parents as we do. Well, I don't know, actually. Yeah, we'd have to go through and count it. I don't know. I mean, but like... I, there's no real theme. I mean... Like, there's a bullying theme, uh, you know, some sort of bullshit job, whether it be paper routes or, you know, hustling is a theme. But I don't know if necessarily happy parents versus, or I mean, uh, uh, parents in successful relationships versus parents that got divorced is, is a theme yet. Yeah, it's possible, like, uh, I don't know, divorce is one of those life events that puts you on the pathway to uh if i can just get enough money then that money could be set up into stacks and it will play catch with me kind of a thing (laughs) yeah perhaps but um you know and and then so in 1954 uh through his aunt sandy weil meets uh joan mosher they have their first date in 1954. They later get married. Uh, Joan Mosher's uh, family is like a rich country club family. Uh, her dad was in public relations. And in like some, I think in the Forbes tidbit, it said that uh, Sandy Weil and his wife lived at their parents' house for a while. But what it doesn't say is that her parents lived in a fucking mansion. So he had the sure, spare room in a mansion. Um they get married. They honeymoon in Florida, apparently on his dad's dime because his dad wanted to make up for like, hey, son, sorry, I was banging this 24-year-old for <laughs> your entire adolescence. Um, but, you know, and then that kind of brings you through. He graduates from Cornell with a liberal arts degree, and he gets a job in 1955. He gets a job at Bear Stearns as a runner. Um, and back in those days, the... Uh, Uh, the Wall Street runners would like take stock certificates and orders and run them to back and forth from the floor of the exchange or wherever else. And this was Sandy Mm. Weil's first job for about $150 a week in 1955. That's where, that's where they took interns and they raced them. And then the winner, the winner uh, gets to keep their job. Really? That happened? Yeah. No, it didn't. Wow. Oh, Steven, I just believe your cold, cold demeanor. Those, those, those blood red eyes just, just scream truth. <laughs> yeah, Jordan Belfort would uh, innovate the intern race by using little people instead of interns. <laughs> Runner. <laughs> oh, um, fun fact. So, stock certificates, physical ones, are still the basis of most stock trades. Mm. Yeah. So whatever stock people are buying on their electronic trading accounts. Um right. There's still one call there's like there's like two depository companies that basically handle all of the paper certificates for like all stocks. Hmm. Yeah. There's one company I think it's called Seed and Co. Yeah. It's been around How for like a hundred years. In those companies? What? How do we invest in the companies that run the runners? Because I feel like they'll be around, recession or not. There might still be runners. I don't know. 
Runners are all classified as essential workers during coronavirus. (laughs) (laughs) Running back and forth because the law says they got to deliver the physical certificates. (laughs) 80% casualty rate. But so the uh, the the his first job, Bear Stearns runner. He does that for about a year. He uh, he takes the brokerage licensing exam. He becomes a broker, and then not too long after, in 1956, he moves to a different company called Burnham and Co., which was a Jewish firm run by I. W. Burnham. And then in 1960, Sandy Weil opens his own firm. And the story of that again from the Monica Langley biography. Um, he goes into business with his neighbor and two other brokers, so it's four of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the four the four young partners each contributed sixty thousand dollars for a total of two hundred and forty thousand dollars, enough to buy a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, for one hundred and sixty thousand dollars, rent a tiny office and hire one secretary to fund his share. Sandy went to his mother. She lent him thirty thousand dollars, and Sandy used all but a thousand of his and Joan's savings, money they had set aside to buy a new house to make up the rest. Uh, in nineteen sixty, May nineteen sixty, the new firm Carter Berland, Apotema and Weil opened on thirty seven Wall Street. So. This is kind of like their own little firm. It starts out in 1960, good year for the stock market. Uh, but quoting from the book again, Peter uh, Potema was, uh, again, one of the four partners. Uh, he was the quote-unquote wild card among the four founders. Uh, and then quoting here, his rich father-in-law sent Carter, Berland a, uh, sent Carter Berland a significant chunk of business. So, you know, again, what you're kind of getting from this story is uh, there is uh, certainly some measure of analytical skill in, in mathematics here, but really it's also like, oh, hey, I met a rich neighbor, and oh, hey, I met another guy who is a rich father-in-law who's going to steer uh, the business to our new firm that is going to allow us to get through the early years. So they survive on the early years because one of the partners has a rich father-in-law. I mean, that's all you need to survive. Hey, are you married to anyone whose dad's richer than your dad? I bet we could survive. And, you know, uh, and then the early years, I'm just going to kind of skip through it because, you know, the the bulk of the story happens later on. But uh, Arthur Carter, one of the, the partners, according to his secretary there, Arthur Carter has at least one secretary in tears every day. That's a quote. Wow. So, you know, this is, again, madmen culture of the 60s, but very <laughs> impressive to bring a secretary to tears every day at your little shitty fucking what? stock research firm. Does he like, he, he like cites that stat? He's like, oh, he walks in. One day he walks in and nobody's crying. He's like, what the hell is going on here? No laughing. It's like, he's like a sabermetrics guy for like making secretaries cry. So it's like, yeah, you know, if if they're like cry vomiting, that's actually just as good as a regular abuse cry. So I've been been poisoning the secretaries. One thing I found out about Joan Mosher is that their first date was April Fool's Day, 1954. And it went so well that Sanford told his friend he was going to marry her. And then she actually was the one who proposed to him. Hmm. Which, I mean, not like crazy, but girl wanted it, if you know what I mean. Pretty progressive for a guy who was in a uh, no woman allowed golf club until like 2002. (laughs) 
But so the new firm, their first real break is in the 1960s. They do a research report about insurance companies that are sitting on cash that could be dispersed to uh, shareholders. You know, they had like big piles of savings and they're like, oh, if we uh, if other banks were to launch takeovers of these insurance uh, companies, they could pay out to their shareholders instead of just hoarding this cash. And so uh, this trend actually launches a wave of mergers throughout the 60s. Eight of the 10 insurance companies they identify in their research report get taken over. There's congressional hearings and SEC investigation, and uh, the laws are changed to put a stop to this. But, you know, for their trouble, the firm, um, uh, they go into business with a, a company to raid a, an insurance company called Reliance, and Carter Berland and Weil, uh, they reap... Um, uh, $750,000 as a finder's fee and another $47,000 commission. And they also kind of make their reputation on Wall Street. And at this point, it's called Carter, Berland, and Weil because uh, uh, one of the founders with the rich father-in-law has been pushed out, and then the Carter guy also gets pushed out. And, you know, it'll change names a bunch. But the important change here is that then it becomes Kogan, Berland, Weil, and Levitt. And Levitt is important wow. because that's Arthur Levitt. He joins and becomes a partner. They hire him. They make him a partner. Arthur Levitt is a future advisor to the Carlisle Group. And more importantly, he's the SEC chairman from 1993 to 2001 throughout the entire Bill Clinton mm. administration. So basically, when we talk about the Glass-Steagall repeal, which was, of course, done under Bill Clinton, the head of the SEC was partners in the company with the guy who got Glass-Steagall repealed. So you just mm -hmm. can't imagine there's any sort of regulation here where this guy is supposed to be the top cop on Wall Street at the SEC, but it's like, no, yeah, I used to be in business with that guy. He's a solid dude. But the only the only effective regulation you can have for interpersonal things like that is just to know that it would look bad to hire someone like that to run the SEC. But that would <laughs> that would imply you have some principles that keep you from doing that. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, then there's the 60s boom, then there's kind of a 70s slowdown. Um, the the new firm, it's called CBWL for short. Uh, it buys out uh, another firm called Hayden Stone, uh, and then it goes public in 1971. Um, they uh, dump their cash and uh, quoting from the, or they dump their stock shares. They go public 1971, mm -hmm. they dump their shares. Uh, intentionally or not, Sandy and his partners had picked precisely the right moment to sell stock in their company. So shortly after the initial public offering, the stock market turned down and stayed down for the next few years. Um, the shares that had sold for $12.50 per share eventually hit a low of $1.63. So this 71 IPO and they all dumped their shares and they're, you know, at this point, very wealthy people, or at least relatively wealthy uh, throughout the 70s and onwards. So do they think it was a pump and dump? Do they think that they got it to the IPO it was and then once they sold, the shit crashed and they knew it? Because that's what the intentional or not thing is, right? Um. It seemed like that, like they had an exit strategy, like like most like serial entrepreneurs would. Mm -hmm. It kind yeah, of it kind of looks like a pump and dump because like it just plummeted after that. But I don't know if they were planning anything. Right. Right. And this other company takes over Hayden Stone. This is where he kind of like sets up his playbook, Sandy Wilde, because as we mentioned earlier, he's like a shy guy, not very charismatic, but he gets a reputation for digging through public filings of all these companies and really getting into the numbers. And so he takes over Hayden Stone. He puts 10% pay cuts across the board. Um, he actually hired a chef at one point, but he had to fire his chef, sadly. Uh, 
But, you know, so this is kind of where he gets his, his playbook going. And this follows throughout the um, the 70s because, you know, there's this crash in the 70s and that's actually a great buying opportunity where the, mm -hmm. the market turns sour. He can buy up a lot of different companies. Uh, he becomes the, he pushes out his remaining partner, Marshall Kogan, and becomes the sole CEO in 1973. Um, he takes over another company called Shearson Hamill and Company. Uh, and then he makes several acquisitions throughout the 1970s, all well on this kind of same playbook of take it over, cut costs, and, you know, stay liquid so that if another company stumbles, you can go in there and grab it and make an acquisition. Right. And then, you know, the 1980s start, and then this is like really, of course, as we all know, the boom years for Wall Street, a real transition, but it's also uh, the first step on his government connections empire where uh, he gets former President Gerald Ford to join the Shearson Loeb Rhodes Board of Directors, uh, which is, of course, a major coup that gave him a lot of cachet and credibility, but also gave him a lobbyist in Washington. And Gerald Ford was, throughout his life, not a rich man, but because he sat on all these boards of Sandy Weil companies, he became extremely rich throughout the 80s and the 90s. So Gerald Ford, former president, owed this guy a big favor, and he certainly paid it back in terms of just lobbying and getting the government to break up all these different laws that prevented the existence of, of companies like Citigroup. It's crazy how, like, there are so many people that we don't know that are definitely connected to billions, but may only have a net worth of like, you know, 10, maybe even a hundred million dollars. But the potential of their n network could be priceless. And while I think about like, mm. I might only have $50 to my name, but I know enough people to where the value of who I am is, is a number that's astronomical. I mean, it makes sense, but it's also so fucked up. Mm. Yeah. You could be a mere, a mere ten, tens of millionaire and uh, within your social secure, social circle, like one or two degrees away, there is a billionaire somewhere. Definitely. But yeah, so, you know, he's moving on up throughout the 80s. He uh, hires Gerald Ford to be on the, uh, the board of his company. He actually just... Like, uh, I hate to get diverted, but I had to read this little anecdote from the book. He rents offices in the World Trade Center in, like, the late 70s. Um, and just quoting from the book here, um, scared of heights and flying, Sandy hesitated initially about um, moving Shearson's headquarters into the clouds, the World Trade Center. Uh, but the World Trade Center's owners told him that the Twin Towers were built to withstand the crash of a 747 jet plane. What? <laughs> what? 1970s. And then, like... <laughs> Like, look, do with this what you will, but apparently Citigroup <laughs> owned the majority of the offices in Tower 7. So I oh, don't really? know if they're just fucking with us. I like that because of time constraints. Sean can't truly dig into this juice yeah. and dirt that he just found. <laughs> that is, there is a 9-11 connection to Citibank. <laughs> it's like, uh, we won't have time to get into my 15,000 words of notes on this, but... Um, <laughs> I'm just going to upload the dossier to Discord, and uh, you guys can go at it. Look, if you subscribe to my other YouTube channel, you can find the full story. But uh, just a warning, look, it's it's been flagged for hate speech, and it's bullshit. But, you know, Google has an algorithm, and uh, I can't monetize it right now, but you should check it out. <laughs> 
You know who might have the answers? Uh, the guy that runs Grubstakers.com. We own .net, but Grubstakers.com is a straight, like, 9 to 18 different sources of, like, a 40-page documents for every conspiracy going on between oil and 9-11 and other things in the world. He might. And, you know, so he's initially, his company is based in the World Trade Center, but what he does, Sandy Weil, he manages to engineer their sale to American Express, the credit card company. Mm. Uh, So in 1981, American Express buys them for triple their book value. So again, you know, they're already rich. This makes them extremely rich, all of the partners who are still in at this point. But they kind of like, you know, put them out to pasture. They buy him and then they give him, you know, no portfolio, nothing to do. But he initially likes it because he has like a car and a driver. He attends, you know, corporate parties with uh, Henry Kissinger, Barbara Walters, Carl Malden, among others. Wow. Um, he starts showing so up. So the man in the mid-70s is just a rich guy to stay a rich guy? Like he could do nothing from the 70s on and he would have been made? Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> And, you know, that's, I mean, that's something we talked about is, like, why some of these billionaires even keep working. It's just, like, at some point you have no other purpose or sense in life where it's, like, if I had $10 million, I would immediately quit this podcast. I don't give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, this is how some of these people define themselves. And, like, you know, Sandy, like, even uh, he gets... He retires at Citigroup, and then when the financial crisis comes, he wants to go back in. He wants back in. He wants to take over. He wants to fix it. But they're like, we don't, we don't need you. Get out of here. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, when your entire life's purpose has been going into the books of companies and slashing out payrolls and slashing out benefits, like this is your meaning. This is what you are on this earth to do, and you get very confused and frustrated when that's taken away from you because you just don't know what else you're supposed to be doing with this short time you have on a God's green earth. For any billionaire lawyer listening right now, the number Sean has given to for us to stop this project is $10 million. Uh, Mind you, it's $10 million a apiece. Uh, let's not pretend like we each take 2.3 and we'd be satisfied with it. I'm kind of like, I'm not glad that we've kind of leveled off on listenership, but I do, the more listeners we get, the more nervous I am that I'm going to have a hit put out on me. And so I do like to, to remind people every episode that I can be bought. There's no, there's no need to send <laughs> fucking John claude Van Damme after me, you know? <laughs> like, why take the risk? Let's just get a mutually beneficial arrangement where I can retire and play PSVR <laughs> for the next 60 years. Yeah, uh, I, I, I won't say that I advocate for low uh, subscriber reviews on iTunes, but I will say when I see them, part of me goes, good, the elite think that we're not a threat. Like, appearing to be mediocre is the only thing that will save all of us from not being murdered by the elite. They sneak on those drops again. <laughs> Uh, but so, you know, so in Amex, he's like, he's kind of famous, or at least he appears on television. He's written up in these New York society columns, but he doesn't have anything to do. So eventually American Express pushes him out in 1985. He's extremely wealthy, but again, he, he has nothing to do. He's in, you know, for him, early retirement. Uh, he's worth about 50 million U.S. dollars when he leaves American Express in 1985. 
But uh, what he does is he sets up a deal with American Express where, first of all, he takes uh, Jamie Dimon, was another employee at American Express. He's the current CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. A uh, future episode will be about him, but he's Sandy Wiles' protege. Uh, Jamie Dimon is at this point in 85. He's 28 years old, and he actually follows Sandy Weil when he leaves American Express. And the, um, the deal that... Sandy Wiles strikes with American Express is they set him up with an office at the Four Seasons in Manhattan. And this is, you know, kind of his launching pad where he eats lunch. He eats lunch every day at the Four Seasons for like a year on, for a while, American Express's dime. And this is kind of his, uh, his getting loaded at the Four Seasons period where mm-hmm. he, do- he goes to these lunches, you know, with, uh, this lunchroom at the Four Seasons is very famous. People like Henry Kissinger, I mentioned earlier, but also Larry and Bob Tisch, uh, uh, Barry Diller, Ron Perelman. These people are all regulars at the Four Seasons, power lunches. Um, Sandy was among the elite. I'm quoting from the Monica Langley book. The moment Sandy was seated, a waiter would place a frosty Gibson, a martini with pickled onions rather than olives, before him. The second Gibson would arrive just as he drained the last of the first one. And this is his everyday routine while he's, like, waiting in exile for his business career to pick up again for, like, more than a year. God. So this is, like, his version of, like, you just go to a coffee shop where mm-hmm. they have, like, um, they don't kick you out after five hours and then you apply <laughs> for jobs or something. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like his business purgatory. Like, in between companies he wants to tear down, he just goes to a restaurant and gets the same drink every day, and the staff is so afraid of him and his power that they make sure that the drinks stay frosty. Right. This is like, you know, we talk about billionaire struggle stories. This is his Napoleon in exile period. (laughs) He's, like, trapped in the four seasons, forced to eat, you know, the fucking finest steaks steaks. every day. You know, forced to to share a room with Barry Diller and all the other elites. But, you know, so Jamie Dimon is with him at this point and uh, initially has some regrets or doesn't really think this guy knows what he's doing because he's getting loaded every day and, you know, passing out on the couch. And they're not really doing anything for like a year. But then in 1986, this company called Commercial Credit uh, seeks him out. Uh, well, actually, an employee at Commercial Credit seeks him out. Commercial Credit was a com- was a company that basically operated as a loan shark company throughout the 80s. Uh, They started out with just kind of um, unsecured personal loans. So they would give people, you know, 19 to 23% interest rate to buy a fridge or whatever other bullshit, you know, blue collar Mm -hmm. workers need it. But they would also do, you know, second mortgages. So it was always a loan sharking company, but it, uh, well, they certainly made it a little more predatory. but, uh, But the basic story is that Robert Voland was um, the vice president for finance at Commercial Credit. Um, But this company, in turn, was owned by another company called Control Data Corp. Um, And then the company that owned them, Control Data Corp, was uh, borrowing heavily from their subsidiary. So he gets the idea, and he approaches Sandy Weil and says, hey, why don't you buy out Control Data from this other company that's like, you know... uh, running into the ground why don't you buy it out from them and spin it off into its own company and ipo it 
And Sandy Weil and uh, Jamie Dimon, they look through the books and they say, hey, this is a great idea. And they raise the money and they do it, you know, from their uh, banking contacts. I believe they raise it from Morgan Stanley. Uh, but Voland, the guy who gave them this tip for his trouble, is sidelined because neither Jamie Dimon or uh, Sandy Weil trust him because they don't trust an employee <laughs> who would do that, go behind the board's back and talk to another person. So, you know, I wonder why. But yeah, and this is what makes Sandy Wiles' fortune. So again, this is how he treats the the people who give him the info that that make him a billionaire. But so they take over commercial credit in 1986. It's uh, it goes public in October of that year. They they make it go public really fast. But it's based in Baltimore. And the story here, when I talk about you know his reputation as a cost cutter, there's just a couple anecdotes I can run through here. Uh, he wants to have. Again, this is a Baltimore company. He initially wants to have the uh, introductory party at 5.30 p.m. and is informed that it'd be better to have it at 4 p.m. because people leave the office at 5 p.m. And he's right. like, well, no, if if they're working for me, they're not going to be leaving the office at 5 p.m. anymore. <laughs> and, you know, so he and Jamie Dimon and some of the other executives, they move out to Baltimore for a bit. Um <clears throat> And but essentially they, what you're t- saying is that this is a guy that gets rich and then instead of retiring saying, fuck it, I don't need money anymore, goes back into companies and says, I'm going to crack the whip harder than any of you because even if I get fired, it doesn't really matter because I'm Sandy Wheel. Right. Like, and, and this is his entire idea is he wants to build a business empire out of this. And, you know, there's just a bunch of people in Baltimore who have like a decent job that doesn't require them to be there until 7 p.m. who are going to face the the wrath of this, who are going to be his little Russian soldiers, you know, pushed into the German machine gun nests with one gun between two of them, (laughs) and uh, all for the glory of Sandy Weil. It'd be like if Grubstakers got bought out by, like, Marin or, like, Kevin Smith or something, and they were like, oh, you guys are going to do eight episodes a week from now on. And we're like, oh, we don't want to do that. And they're like, we don't, I don't care. You, what are you going to do? Fire me. I, I own you now. And it's like, I guess we have to do what the boss says. Right. Well, I mean, it is basically that. Like, I'm just going to read a bit from the Monica Langley book here because, you know, the, the entire team goes from New York out to Baltimore. Uh, within an hour, Sandy and his handpicked team stormed into Commercial Credit's lobby. The new CEO stopped abruptly to see the stack of Wall Street Journal and Baltimore Sun papers awaiting distribution. See if these papers are paid for by Commercial Credit, he instructed Diamond. Cancel all subscriptions. If employees want a Wall Street Journal, tell them pay it yourself. Pay for it yourself. <laughs> Uh, when he got off the, when Sandy got off the elevator, he noticed that the few employees already there at eight o'clock were filling up coffee pots. Take the coffee pots away. We aren't going to pay for anybody's coffee pots in their offices. Spotting a plant service contractor watering the pot, potted trees outside his office, Sandy scowled. No more watering plants. He then turned to his secretary. Water your plant yourself. <laughs> what? They're probably just using tap water. Okay. Yeah, so, like, and that's just kind of, like, and that's just one example where not only that, he slashes, you know, car benefits, he slashes, um, uh, he slashes carpool benefits, uh, he slashes 2,000 jobs immediately, uh, then he orders another 125 jobs be cut, he, uh, he ends medical benefits, and he smashes up this vacation day bank, like, it gets worse here, and then, like, all the while, he's doing these dinners after work with his executive team every day these steak dinners which the book is not clear about but i assume they're billing the company for these things yeah of course 
and like that he's just trimming the fat as much as he can and no one beneath him or no one beneath or above him really has enough money to be like fuck this guy and he so he just kind of does what he wants and it's not even that really impressive he's just improving the company by that one percent marginal you know cut that you have to do to make something slightly better it's a fucking genius move because it's not even really that good, but it just makes everyone's life work worse. And it makes your company something that is more of a fucking dictatorship than it is a functioning company. Well, it's like we wonder why these fucking jobs in America have gotten so awful and soulless. It's like, okay, so the guy just like threw out all the free coffee and like he's like, hey, let the plants die. You know, right, you just have right. the fluorescent lights now because and like... You know, the thing is, okay, you know, all right, the Wall Street Journal subscriptions, he gets rid of all these little perks, and, you know, these are, like, small cost-saving stuff, but it gets worse. Like, just from the book, uh, a few days later, he summons the human resources head. He points to a line called Earn Vacation Bank in the human resources uh, director. Uh, The HR director explains that many employees had been saving their vacation each year to use for early retirement. Consequently, commercial credit was carrying the amount on its books and had to reserve against the future costs. I want to get rid of this, Sandy said. I believe in use it or lose it. Uh, the HR said, head says that people earned this. They'll want money if they don't get time off. And he says, fine, we'll buy them out at 25% of the value. So he wow. smashes up the vacation <laughs> bank. So all of your vacation days are gone now for 25% of the value. Um, oh, my God. Then he hones in on a large amount reserved for retiree medical. Uh, he asked the HR head, how much does a retiree for commercial credit pay in medical? Nothing. Commercial credit pays their medical costs for life. Sandy recoiled violently. What, he snarled? We're changing that right now. Retirees will pay 100% of their own medical costs. He what? pointed out that many of the retirees weren't el- eligible for Medicare because they weren't yet 65 years old. Sandy couldn't believe his ears. Why are they retiring so early? If they make a life choice, why should the company pay for it? And, you know, bad publicity and lawsuits do actually follow this, but he gets away with it. And, of course. again, he's we, we study these billionaires as examples of wider phenomenon. Sandy Weil is an example of a wider phenomenon in American business, American capitalism, where workers in every single industry and field have seen this shit, where they used to have unions and they used to have good benefits. And in many cases, they used to have vacation banks and, you know, defined benefit pensions. And guys like Sandy Weil came in and became geniuses because they were cost cutters who smashed that all up. And we shouldn't think of them as geniuses. No. Since all they're all they're doing is just they tell a bunch of HR people to give me a list of all the things, all the benefits the employees have, and then he just goes through and cuts a bunch of them. And like that's not he's not some like financial engineer or something. Right. It's like you know he gets this reputation as you know. Of course, we don't think of him as a genius, but it's just like pick up the fucking. Uh, pick up the budgeting book and then draw a red line through everything that belongs to the employees, basically. Yeah, I mean, I um, I guess if, if anything is even approaching genius, it's just his ability to not care about uh, the yeah, people whose... Who's, behavior? Yeah, the people whose lives he ruins. So like, there's probably other... There's probably been other CEOs and senior officers before him in the company who, I mean, that's not a secret that you could do that, but they just either felt bad or thought it would hurt them politically. Mm-hmm. 
So divorce was the key to his success this entire time. <laughs> See, that this is what happened in America. His parents started getting divorced, but before they got divorced, the kids had like communal feelings and they wouldn't want to like smash up somebody's medical benefits. But, you know, that aggression that follows divorce is... Uh, <laughs> Really, I guess <laughs> eventually I'm just going to become one of those like trad psychopaths who thinks the birth control pill destroyed the society. <laughs> and you know, maybe they're right. I will say that like one of our uh, review says that uh, our analysis 100% of the time is negative towards the person we're uh, looking at. And it's like, our analysis isn't what's negative. Th- these people are doing horribly terrible things yeah, and they, we're they choosing it. Like the world should ought to be to not be as negative. So and then we'll stop evaluating it as such. Right. As far as billionaires. Those are my favorite reviews who are like, we're too negative on the billionaires. Like, oh, you want a not negative treatment of the billionaires? Yeah. Well, just read any newspaper. <laughs> Have you turned on any cable television network? You can find the opposite case. We are the only ones doing negative treatment of these billionaires. <laughs> But so, you know, and look, the list as what they did at commercial credit, the list goes on and on. But the the point is, this is what he did with almost every company. This is just one very egregious example. This is his playbook. This is why, you know, Jamie Dimon becomes his protege. A lot of people become his protege. They follow this same playbook. And I did just want to mention one other thing with regards to commercial credit. Uh, from the Monica Langley book, he and Jamie Dimon discovered a $50 million surplus in the company's pensions plan. Uh, Sandy's eyes lit up. He summoned uh, the HR director. I need that $50 million, Sandy stated. He told him, uh, he told the HR director he intended to terminate the current pension plan in order to put its cash surplus into the company's coffers. Doesn't that surplus belong to the participants? The HR had asked. Uh, I need that $50 million, and I need it now, Sandy stated urgently. Uh, basically, the surplus had accumulated from good investments the comp- the pension plan had made. Uh, they smashed all surplus, all cushion for the pension plan to nothing, so that, you know, if the pension plan goes south, all the employees were fucked, and eventually all the employees were moved over to a far less gen- generous defined contribution as opposed to defined benefit pension plan. So it was just Jamie Dimon and Sandy Weil going to this company and they're like, oh, hey, they've got a $50 million barrier against losses on their pension plan. Let's smash it. Let's put it back into stock. Let's pay ourselves with their fucking retirement. And, you know, this is the story of commercial credit where he gets a reputation as a cost cutter, but they're doing nightly steak dinners at the Harbor (laughs) Court Hotel for the executive team where Sandy Weil is apparently ordering everything on the menu, and in fact, in many cases, ordering two of everything on the menu in order that he will always have the most opulent of the entire executive team. He has the most opulent meal in front of him. So it's like cost cut for what thee, but not for me. What a fucking piece of shit. Hey, sorry, uh, everyone at work can't have coffee because I want fucking lamb tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, uh, yeah, coffee today costs less than a dollar per cup. This is like, yeah, this will get him a like bulk for a company. It's a fucking like, you know, it's it, it's not the same as having water, but it's a fucking basic need. Uh, and for Sandy to be like, ah, sorry, guys, uh, I, I like my fucking fettuccine with lobster. I'm going to be at lunch for another hour and a half. And not only is it like most likely he's charging the company for it, but 
This is how he does his job. His operating <laughs> costs involve his ass eating caviar every fucking day. He's going over the expenses with the building management teams, and he's like, "Oh, just give him decaf. Just give him the <laughs> just give him the decaf pods for the machine." Ugh. He's going through the office like, dump out that coffee pot. Throw those newspapers out the window. This will get me one one thousandth of the way there to a fucking filet mignon. And you know that like New York Times, however the company had it set up, must have either been at like a bulk cost or like a business cost or something. So like him cutting it, it's not like he was probably paying the price of a paper at at inventory value, but more that like, you know, the company's got to subscribe. I just... It's fucking gross, man. This motherfucker's gross. He's got fucking Dijon mustard on his fucking lips as he's telling people, hey, stop using so much ink when you write up reports. It's just fucking bullshit. And in one hand, this is how a boss operates. But at the same time, the level of callousness you need to fucking make this much money through banking is fucking heartless. Right. And again, you know, we talked about at the beginning of the episode, there was a transition in American capitalism from the CEO having like some sort of mission to his his or her employees, um, the stakeholders and the wider community. And now it's just the shareholders where he goes wider and whiter communities. Yes. He goes into commercial credit. Uh, the unused vacation time is erased. Employee health insurance costs go up. Company contributions to 401k plans end. And a less lucrative pension plan had been put into place so that they could raid the $50 million and uh, pay it back to themselves. Because as we mentioned, in October 1986, they take this company public. And then they just do everything they can to juice the returns and cash out. And then to kind of wrap up the commercial credit story, uh, we should just say they also start offering new loan products, you know, variable rate loans, different forms of insurance, where this thing, when they took it over, only had two different products, but they do a bunch of different other loan shark products. So again, this is classic business 101. They slash cost to the bone, and then they look for all these different revenue streams. They look for cross-selling. Uh, they get, you know, all these offices of aggressive salespeople. So throughout the 80s, they really turned this into an efficient and quite vicious loan sharking operation with all these fucking variable rate loans they're pushing people into. And uh, the stock price rebounds. And this has set Sandy back on the path to become a, a billionaire. Uh, Forbes, as of April 2020, puts him at about $1 billion net worth. And commercial credit is the stepping stone that puts him on that pathway. And uh, I guess I did just want to mention that uh, apparently there was a blizzard in Baltimore and Sandy personally called the governor to demand to know why public transit wasn't running and his employees weren't there. (laughs) He calls the governor of Maryland and uh, then he puts a policy into place that anyone who doesn't show up during a snow day will not be paid for that day. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, and then he's just complaining that these people in Baltimore are leaving the office at 5 p.m., uh, which is, you know, this is ridiculous. He He's going around with a puff of cigar smoke asking everybody he sees in the office, what do you do? He's like interrogating these employees and, of course, thousands of layoffs. Like, how does he get these employees to accept all these benefit cuts? Because he's firing all these fucking people. And this happened to the American worker all over the place in every different industry. But so that's, you know, the nuts and bolts story of commercial credit, the first company that Sandy Weil took over, or his rebound company. 
Uh, he took it over, and this set him back on the track to eventually take over Traveler's Insurance, eventually merge Traveler's Insurance with Citibank to become Citigroup and become a billionaire and create this monster that we're still dealing with today. Uh, we're going to wrap up this part one here. We're going to continue part two on the Patreon, and uh, if necessary, we'll have a part three as well. Uh, part two will continue the story of Sandy Weil throughout the uh, 1980s all the way up to the repeal of Glass-Steagall, and uh, the part three will cover kind of Citigroup as a corporate entity and what it did in the 2008 financial crisis and in the current coronavirus crisis. Uh, but uh, thank you for listening, and uh, stay safe. Thank you to our Patreons, and uh, thank you to all of the reviewers who are furious that they cannot find good press for billionaires <laughs> on our podcast. Furious that we would take a negative look at these people who are so mistreated by the wider American I, media. I'm not sorry. <laughs> it is just like funny that we talked throughout this episode about how Sandy Weil is like lauded as a genius. Like just a fucking one or two hour Google disproves that. Like you see the human cost of all of this. So again, it is funny to me when people come into our reviews and are like, you guys are so negative about these billionaires. It's like, why the fuck do they have the reputation as a genius to begin with? <laughs> Something went horribly wrong. Somebody has to be negative about these people. Right. But I, I like, I find myself also being, you know, I, the, there's a flip that happens because there've been a handful of episodes that we've done as a show that, when we went into it, I felt like I don't really know why we're covering this person. And within 20 minutes of looking at information about them, you start seeing, oh, this person is purely evil. And the more altruistic a billionaire looks to be, sometimes the more fucked up they seem to be as a human being. Like Epstein pre-first arrest is literally just like the smartest, most philanthropic, nicest, uh, intelligent billionaire around before it's revealed that this man runs a pedophile ring. One star. They were way too negative on Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> I came to this podcast for a balanced look at the life of Jeffrey Epstein, but they were criticizing him the entire time. <laughs> and with that, this is from Grubstakers. I'm Yogi Pauly Wall. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Check us out part two for the continuation of the Sandy Wild story on the Patreon and part three for a further look at Citigroup, the too big to fail bank. Thanks for listening. Bye.